I was I was just thinking as you were busy talking, Brother Dave, you were you were talking about Raquel and you were saying that how much it helps to die to, to know what the uh, diagnosis is. And I was thinking I wonder how that fits into your personal context. I'm not quite sure how your um, your own special wife went through the process of diagnosis, and that's perhaps uh, a thing that you're speaking out of experience. And and so I, I say that because I see you stand up there um, in a pretty uh, with a pretty positive attitude and pretty happy, and it, it seems like you've healed to a certain extent. And then I think about Brother Tom, who is not there yet, and who's grappling with that. And then I think of Raquel, who is lying in a hospital bed with a disease that the doctors can't get a grip on. And I think of, of, of Gail and Norm, thinking, you know, battling with the idea of their, their daughter uh, being very sick and not knowing what the future holds in. All of these, these, you know, death, disease, these are very real um, life issues. These are real. This isn't like airy-fairy stuff. And there's a, there's a belief system out there that says this is the reason why Christianity exists. Because sometime in the past, a group of people in the Middle East decided we need to think of some way of giving people comfort in death and disease. So we, let's make up the story about a Savior who dies on a cross and who saves people and heals people and gives them hope beyond this life. And Let's create this idea that when you die, you don't really die. You get to see your loved ones again. And Let's make up the story. Let me tell you this. If that story is made up, it's, then it's a miracle. And then God made it. There's, there's just too many, there's just too much evidence. The tomb is empty. The story is incredible. More than 40 authors wrote this stuff. So either it's a made up thing, which is a miracle, which proves that God exists, or it really happened, and our real hope is actually in a real cross. And so when people do die, that's what they've been living for their whole life. That's the hope that we have in Christ. So it's hard for us tonight. I mean, it's hard to deal with this. But this is why we have Jesus. Brother Tom, your, your lady sat here for years listening to these lessons and these messages. Now she gets to see the reality. This is why we believe what we believe. Because it's tangible. It's not a fairy tale. That's not why we're here tonight. It's not because it's a fairy tale. Because it's real. Even Raquel lying in that bed. God knows exactly what's going on with her body. He's in control of this world and he's in control of her body. So we put our hope in him. And I want to encourage you just to continually put your hope in him and, and to lean on those who've gone through what, what, what you are going through. I don't want to damp the, our atmosphere currently. Um, but I have prepared a lesson for tonight. Maybe we can smash through it quickly. Get some things out of there. It's called Rebaptism in Ephesus. And it's in Acts chapter 19, verse 1 to, to 10. Just 10 verses to look at. 
there's a there's this there's a lot of stuff in here and I hope that we can go through it in an effective way um, and hopefully learn some things here. Um, this is Paul's second missionary journey. I know you can probably not see much. Let me just switch this off. Oh, okay. Is that okay? Can you guys see? All right, that's, that's the second missionary journey of Paul. Paul was in Corinth over there. That's Corinth. He was in Corinth, and there he met two people, Priscilla and Aquila. And it was also the place where he was scared, and God appeared to him in a dream. And I think, I don't know, we don't know, nobody knows, and if people claim that they do know, they're talking nonsense, that maybe Paul took some type of a Nazarite vow in Corinth for God's protection. And he left Jerusalem, because, oh, he left Corinth because he wanted to go to Jerusalem over there, to, to finalize this vow that he had made to God. That's what we assume. Because I think it was in King Crea that he shaved off his hair. And so he traveled to Ephesus. And, and, and there's two people traveling with him to at least Priscilla and Aquila. And he drops them off in Ephesus. And um, then he says, he makes a promise to them. He says, I'll come back to you if it's God's will. What a wise man Paul is. I'll come back to you if it is God's will. I will live tomorrow if it's God's will. We can all say that. And Gail said that very wisely in a moment, you know. God can do anything. But what is in God's will with Raquel? Then he went to Jerusalem. And from Jerusalem he went to Antioch and he gave the church. Because that's his missional church. His sending church. Gave them a little bit of a feedback. That ends the second missionary journey. We are now in the third missionary journey. That starts in Antioch. Alright. From Antioch, Paul travels through the areas of... Galatia, you see through there, and you won't be able to read the names there, but there's Iconium and Lystra and Derby. And if you've been here in the studies, then you will know that the, those are the cities that Paul visited first on his first missionary journey. That is where Paul was stoned and beaten. That's all kinds of stuff happened to him there. And then he goes into that, you see that big place there, it's called Asia. And he goes into Asia from the top, and he goes into Ephesus. And that is where we are tonight. All right, just a brief recap so we know where we are. Third missionary journey. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. <clears throat> there he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So, later on, the text tells us that there were 12 disciples. I'm going to go two verses at a time. Just, just hang in there. Because they don't want to miss stuff. But what's interesting is that the text calls them disciples. And a disciple is somebody that follows Christ, right? A disciple is a student and a follower of the Messiah, the way, or of Jesus. So these guys were followers of Jesus. Maybe they had similar convictions as Apollos. And if you remember, you probably won't remember, but two weeks ago we spoke about Apollos. Apollos was teaching um, about Jesus, but he didn't have the, the full understanding, right? They say they've not even heard of the Holy Spirit. Now Luke records this, I think, because the Holy Spirit is a big deal. 
I grew up with the Holy Spirit not being a big deal. I was taught it's not a big deal. But for the first century church, the book of Acts, it's a big deal. The Holy Spirit is all over the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit was, was evidence of God's truth. The Holy Spirit came down to prove what the apostles were saying was true. It was the power of God that permeated the church from the days of Pentecost. So these people were preaching about Jesus without the Holy Spirit. They were so close, but so far. Very, very interesting. Now, <clears throat> let's read further, verse 3. So Paul asked them, Then what baptism did you receive? Well, you, you don't know about the Holy Spirit, okay, but what baptism did you then receive? It's interesting that he switches over to baptism. John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism, yeah, okay, I know John's baptism, but John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. But he told you to believe in the one coming after him. That is in Jesus. So these guys were teaching John's theology. John the Baptist's theology, right? And it seems like they were teaching about Jesus, what John said about Jesus. So they were so close to the truth, but they didn't have the total truth. They were taught by John, probably while he was still alive. These were probably some of the first disciples of John the Baptist that we read about in the Gospels. This was about 26 years before this. So these guys were disciples of John. They heard John talk about Jesus. We don't see that they have met Jesus themselves. Maybe they were just visiting in Judea. They heard John preach, and then they went back to Asia. That's why the scholars call these guys Asiatic Jews. They were Asiatic Jews. They were not Christians. They believed in the teaching of John the Baptist. They believed that he probably came the spirit of, of Elijah. But they were probably not there when Jesus was crucified. Because we know John the Baptist preached for quite a while. And I think that left a gap in their theology and in their understanding. A few observations. These Asiatic Jews had good hearts but incomplete faith. They believed what John said. When they heard John preach, they said, okay, we believe what you're saying, man. We're willing to repent. Why? Because How do we know that? Because they received the baptism of John, which is a baptism of repentance. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So they repented, right? They respected and honored God. But was their faith in Jesus? Totally. It doesn't seem like it. Because after 26 years, they were still hanging around the synagogues. So they were still Jews. What does that mean? They were still reliant on the law of Moses. So they were sort of hybrid Jews. John the Baptist Jews. Not just Jews, John the Baptist Jews. But they weren't Jesus followers fully. They were this hybrid. And this hybrid thing is such a problem. Because I think there's a lot of hybrids in our world today as well. So they were in many ways still relying on their own obedience for God's blessing. That is why Paul uses the word Believe. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Why does he use that word? Because belief doesn't just mean intellectual faith. 
Belief doesn't mean just intellectual faith. Well, well, I believe. Belief is this. It's putting your trust in. To put your trust in. That's the Greek word, pistis. To put your trust in Jesus. So when you were baptized, did you put your trust in Jesus for your salvation? Or did you just get baptized as a sign that you're repenting? Which one is it? Well, they say, well, we, we just did it at the time because John was preaching that we need, we need to do this if we repent. And yes, we want to repent and be prepared for the kingdom. So yes, we did get baptized because we want to repent. But putting our trust in Jesus, no, that did not happen. We're actually putting our trust in the law of Moses still. That's the only way that I can make sense of this. So they was, instead of trusting in Jesus, they were trusting in what? The law. And unfortunately, we have that still today. These hybrid Christians. I, I believe in Jesus, but I trust in myself for salvation. We don't understand the, the word belief. We have to make a switch from trusting in ourselves to be saved to trusting in Jesus to be saved. That's what the word belief really means. That is why this baptism was so essential and why Paul brought it up. So that's the first thing. The second thing is this. Baptism and belief are inseparable. We've spoken about it many times. We see it here again. When Paul presses on these guys to find out what they believe, he immediately goes to baptism. Why is that his first question? Why does he immediately go to baptism? Because your baptism is your point of real belief, trusting belief. It is where your faith intersects with the physical realm. It's where your faith intersects with the physical realm. They believed John about Jesus, but they have not put their trust in him. And I think this can happen with any of us. We speak of Jesus, but I have not put our trust in him. Let's see what happens further. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. A few points that I, that I see here. Um, firstly, immediate action always follows genuine belief. When they realized their theology wasn't complete, when they realized, okay, we don't have it all together, they immediately got baptized. It's genuine belief. It's always what I say to people. It's like, yeah, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Yes, I do. Okay, why don't you just get baptized then? The only, the only reason why you won't get immediately baptized is because you're not sure. You don't really believe. Because if you really believe He's the way, the truth, and the life, why won't you just do what He says? Your action proves, or, or your inaction proves that you don't believe fully. This is what makes the faith-only issue so silly. When people say, well, it's faith-only faith. You cannot separate belief from action. I mean, you've got to, I mean, you've got to read the text. I mean, if, let's read it quickly so that we're all just on the same page on this. James chapter 2. Verse 14, and people say, well, James contradicts Paul. No, he doesn't. James is explaining faith to us. James 2.14, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? If you have a faith that's not obedient, 
You can't be saved. As simple as that. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. I'll repeat that. Faith without deeds is dead. It's not a real faith. Oh, you say you love me. Uh, why don't you want to get married to me? Same thing. You say you love me, but you don't want to commit to me. You say you believe in me, but you don't want to get baptized. There's something wrong. Something deeply wrong. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. And then James says, show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. And we can go unpack this further, but I think that makes the point. Faith and deeds go to, together. Your faith and your baptism go together. When these guys heard, they immediately obeyed. Now, if baptism... <coughs> If baptism was not important and it was not a necessity, then why on earth would these guys get baptized immediately? If it's not important, why? I mean, we believe Jesus. We've been preaching about Him for 26 years. Really? Why would I need to get baptized? That's why I've titled this rebaptism, rebaptism in Ephesus. Because they got baptized again. Physical baptism has spiritual implications. Why did Paul not lay his hands on these guys to receive the Holy Spirit before their baptism? Everybody understand that question? They got baptized and then Paul goes, lays his hands on them. They receive the Holy Spirit and they start speaking in tongues. Why didn't you just do that immediately before they got baptized? Well, the text doesn't tell us, but if we just look at the theology, the way that the Bible represents it, they have not given over their full trust in Jesus yet. That was symbolized by their baptism. They've not done it yet. They were adherents of Jesus but not spiritual followers of him. Baptism proved to Paul that they were in. They were really in. Their message to God and Paul through their baptism was, we are all in. All in. Here we go. Fully immersed into Jesus. Done with all of Judaism. It was a big moment. The text puts it in a few verses, but this was a huge deal for these guys. I think it was liberating for them. We liberated from Judaism. Oh, and we got the full picture that John the Baptist was trying to tell us. But we left Judea before we could see Jesus himself, perhaps, and see what he had done for us. And I don't believe that Paul would lay his hands on people easily because he warns Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.22, do not be quick in the laying on of hands. So Paul was very careful about this. He wouldn't just lay hands on people if he wasn't sure that they've given up everything. So that's what I suspect happened. I want to make two side notes here. <clears throat> there is currently a trend going in, in certain churches that um, they say that people must uh, be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they mustn't be baptized just in the name of Jesus. What does this text say? In whose name were they baptized? In the name of Jesus. 
People say, oh, my dear, the Bible contradicts because in Matthew it says, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit, or baptize them. So, so in whose name do we baptize people? Do, do we have to make a big issue about this? Isn't Jesus the Holy Spirit in us? And isn't, isn't the Father Jesus in flesh? Did Jesus not say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? I am in my Father and the Father is in me. It's the same thing. It's a triune God. Now, I wouldn't baptize somebody in the name of the Holy Spirit. And I wouldn't baptize somebody in the name of the Father. But Jesus is all three. So yes, of course, you can say, I baptize you in the name of Jesus Christ. Side note two. Um, I don't have any time now for an extensive explanation of pneumatology. Pneumatology is the study of the Holy Spirit. Pneuma, spirit, breath. And that's a huge discipline in theology. But in a nutshell, the Holy Spirit gives, gives gifts as He pleases. Some people have been uniquely gifted, been gifted by the Holy Spirit to encourage others, to, uh, to teach, to preach, to evangelize. Some people have been uniquely gifted to be generous. I, I mean, there's lists of gifts that we get through the Holy Spirit and that's a whole study on its own. So he gives gifts to people as he determines. Okay? And he gives power in different forms and in different ways. Like we see in the text, what power did he give you? He said, well, some spoke in tongues. Right? Um, we see in the, in the book of Acts that the apostles have tremendous gifts. And He gives those gifts and powers as He pleases. But we have to understand that there are two specific giftings of the Holy Spirit. And I briefly spoke about that uh, with Brother DeMult the other day. There's two different giftings. We speak about Dorian and Charismata. Dorian basically refers to the gift of the Spirit. Is when, is when Paul talks about the idea that the Holy Spirit comes in you. It's your seal the sealing of the Holy Spirit. That's what you receive. That's what Acts 2.38 talks about. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is God coming to live inside of you and changing you from the inside out. Because God has now forgiven you of your sin, you no, more have, you no longer have sin in His sight. He places His Spirit inside of you to transform you and to sanctify you. That's the gift of the Spirit that we receive when we Get immersed into Christ. But then there's also charismata. The power of the Spirit. The miraculous working of the Spirit. So there's the salvific working. God saves me, sanctifies me through the Spirit. But then there's also the miraculous power of the Spirit. That's expressed through miracles and speaking in tongues and healing people and raising the dead. The Spirit can do that. And he can do it any way that he wants to. So everybody understand these two different things. And so we see that at play here. Now what we read about in the New Testament in the book of Acts is that we see that <clears throat> the miraculous gift of the Spirit comes two times in one way, which is what we find in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 10. The Spirit comes down like tongues of fire on the people. And they start speaking in tongues. It's a miraculous uh, event that comes down from heaven. That's one way 
that you can receive the charismata, the charismatic gifts of the Spirit. Secondly, an apostle can lay his hands on you and you can receive the gift. The problem with this is, is that when people in the charismatic movement go around today, they say, well, I can heal people, I can speak in tongues. My question is, how did you get that? They say, well, we got an apostle in our church. I'm like, geez, bro, that guy's 2,000 years old because the way I understand it, all the apostles died. Right? They say, no, but I, it came from heaven. I say, okay, well, did you hear a loud noise, wind? Like what happened in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2? Did people see tongues of fire fall down upon you? When you did receive that miraculous uh, power. But that, that's, in any case, a discussion for another day. The reason why I point this just out is that these guys were baptized. And we believe, based on the theology of Acts, like chapter 2 verse 38 says, they received the gift of the Holy Spirit when they got baptized. Then the apostle came, he laid hands on them, and they received the charismata, the miraculous gift to perform miracles, to speak in tongues, etc., etc., Let's continue further. Paul entered, verse 8, the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. A few things to point out here before we, we, I conclude with something cool. The first thing I, I want to point out in that text is disputation and persuasion are evangelistic methods. If you go look at the original language, it says that's what Paul did. He went into the synagogue and he disputed and persuaded. That's literally the word. He disputed and persuaded. I've heard people say, oh, we shouldn't be. I've heard many people say, Christians, we shouldn't be trying to persuade people. Of course we should. If we have the truth and it can save and it can give people hope, people who have lost loved ones, people who've got kids that are sick, and it can give them hope, of course we've got to try to persuade them to put their trust in Christ. It will bring them healing. It will help them believe it's going to be okay, man. If we believe in the resurrection of the dead, of course we've got to try to persuade people that Jesus did really rise from the grave. Because it will give them hope. So, you know, people say we shouldn't be persuading. God will do the work. Yeah, God does the work through us. And I spoke about that this morning. And that means we'll have to equip ourselves to be capable of making argumentation in defense of the Christian faith. And that we've we got to develop our skills in being capable of persuading people to believe in the Jesus that we believe in. And we, there's no shame in that. Paul did it. Secondly, the story of acts in kingdom opposition is this. If, you, if they refuse to believe, leave. If they refuse to believe, leave. We don't have to throw all of our pearls to the pigs. I find what they do pretty interesting. Paul leaves, and what do they do? They, go take, they take Paul's ideas and his teaching, and they go throw it into the public. But they misalign it in the public. They don't give the full truth. So, so they throw it into the public domain. I don't know how they did that. Did they go into the marketplace and say, hey guys, this guy, I, I forgot to say this, that Ephesus was sort of the, was the capital of Asia. It's a big city. It's a hub, right? And they go into the marketplace and they just throw this idea out there, however their newspapers worked in those days, and they say, well, look, don't listen to this guy because he teaches this nonsense. 
and, and they don't give the full package, the full package of truth. And that's exactly the same thing that's happening today. Exactly the same thing. I listened this week to a debate, a discussion, a debate discussion between two atheists. The one is Sam Harris and the other guy is, I can't remember his name, but he's, he's the, uh, some young Turk. And um, they were having a discussion. Two atheists are having a discussion about why religions are bad. And then they started going into a discussion about which religion is the worst. And the one guy keeps on saying, hey, but all the religions are equally bad. They all cause the same amount of death. And I couldn't believe as I was listening to this guy. Like the one guy said, well, what, what, and he's got a Muslim background, and he says, well, Christianity is, is even worse in terms of killing people than, than the, the, the Muslims are. It's exactly the same. And I, I, to be honest with you, he didn't even give evidence in his whole talk about why, you know, Christianity is really a genocidal uh, type of religion. I couldn't believe this because obviously he's never read the Bible. Jesus gives himself up. He tells Peter to put away his sword and heals Malchus's ear. He's not a warrior. He's, not, he's never told his followers to go and kill people. It's, it's the most ridiculous thing ever heard. But it, it just reminded me once again about how easy it is in the public domain and in our world it's social media. How the truth is maligned on social media by those who hate the truth. It's the same thing. Paul speaks to these guys in the synagogue. They run out into the public square and they try, and this is the key, they try to persuade the masses that the cross is not the truth. This is happening on a large scale today. Thirdly, in contrast to current social ideology, Jesus separates. And this is very difficult to deal with. What does Paul do here when they oppose him? He separates from them. Now think about, now some of you, I, 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 and I apologize about some of you might not have an, a clue what I'm talking about, but I'll, I'll explain it as we go on. But Paul says, okay, you guys don't want to hear, so we separate. And he takes with him who? The Christians. Now you've got what? The separation between Jew and Christian. Separation. Not unification, separation. And he goes and he, he parks in the, in, in, the, um, in the school hall. We're going to talk about that in a moment's time. Remember what Jesus said. He said that he's come to separate. This needs to sink in. He came to separate. He came to bring a sword. And the text says specifically that he came to separate even family members. That's what Jesus does. He separates people from each other. And it sounds horrible. And this is exactly in opposition to the ideology of our world that we live in. What is the ideology of our world today? Be one. Right? Be inclusive. Pull people together. Wouldn't you say that's a noble, a noble goal? It is noble for the whole human race to be one, for the whole human race to love each other, for the whole human race to accept each other and to stand together, right? But there's a problem here, ladies and gentlemen. There's a big problem here. The truth only has one side. You're either on the side of truth or you're against it. You can't be on both sides. That's our problem. 
You're either with the truth or you're against it. As simple as that. That's what Jesus means when he says, I'm coming to separate. Because even family members will disagree about the truth. Some people will choose the truth and some people will hate the truth in your own family. And that will cause separation. And so you have to choose family or truth. What's the highest value? That's difficult. That's why we pray that we never have to stand in opposition to our family because of the truth. So what our society is saying is this, and I want you to listen carefully to this, and this might not affect most of us here. It certainly affects me and the people that I engage with. What our world is trying to say to us is this, and I'm sorry, I don't have it on the screen, but that would have helped. Let's unite. Let's all be one. Even if it compromises the truth. That's the goal. Being one is more important than standing with truth. Jesus says, it hurts, but we will separate rather before we compromise on truth. That's what happens here. Paul says, let's separate. Let's leave. It's uncomfortable, and there are many topics that I can point out right now that's difficult to deal with. Paul could have stayed in the synagogue, continued to preach about Jesus, and compromised some of the truth, right? And there would have been unity in that town. But what would have happened? When the moment you do that, you kick truth out the door. And isn't, it, isn't truth the thing that gives us life? Isn't truth the thing that sets us free? Yes. So, side note, we see here the first church, and I might be incorrect because I can't remember everything, but I think we see here the first church outside of a house. We could talk about Solomon's Colonnade where the church came together and that, but it wasn't a frequent every um, day type of thing for months and years. And this, this church is now meeting in a school. It's actually a school. The NIV doesn't translate that pretty well. It's a school of Tyrannus. And you know what the Christians did there? The Greek word is, uh, did, do you have the text in front of you? What did they do? What did they do in the school of Tyrannus? Reasoning daily. The Greek word is dialegumai. Who would like to explain what that is? Their dialogue. Now, a few Sundays back, I asked us to, I'll talk for 10 minutes and then we have dialogue. You know, when you read through the book of Acts, you see much more of that than you see of what's happening right now. And I, I think it's great that there's a time for breaching, but I, I think we gain a little bit more when we do also sit and talk to each other about what the text says. And this is, I want you to see in the text why I'm I'm, 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 I'm shouting for it and I'm asking for it because we need to talk about the text. The, the early church did a lot more of that. And I know, and I know it, it's, it's sometimes hard for us. I mean, because, to be honest, I mean, it's a, it's a tradition that has developed. That you come to church, you sit, and you listen to somebody talk. You know, and, and I'm not throwing that out the door. I think there's space for it. God has gifted some people to speak and explain the word. Yes, so there's, 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 there's space for that. But 
We've got to talk about this. Um, because sometimes it's like, yeah, and I would, isn't it more comfortable to just sit and listen to somebody talk? I mean, because otherwise, oh, now I've actually got to read this thing, man. And now, yeah, now I've got to think. Well, well, I don't want to sit and think. I just want to sit and listen and decide what I want to hear and what I don't want to hear. Now you're going to throw questions at me and I have to answer. But that's it. That's grappling with the text. That's, I think, what we need. So I want to ask you to pray about that. We've got to, I, I honestly feel we need to do more of this. Here we have it in the text. That's what they did. I think it's good for us. And I'm not trying to get myself out of preaching. I will talk till the sun dies. All right. Let me conclude something pretty cool. I don't know if you, who of you will remember, but um, Paul's second missionary journey. Paul is traveling through, guess which province? He's traveling through Asia. And he doesn't know where he's supposed to be preaching. He wants to go north into Bithynia. But he doesn't, and then he's blocked. And then the text says this. Paul and his companions traveled through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Now, I just want to see something here. Did I miss something? Look at that verse 10. This went on for two years in the school of Tyrannus, right? So that all the Jews and Greeks, that's verse 10, sorry, that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in which province? Asia heard the word of God. That is a profound statement. Did you want to go back to the map and just see how big that is? That's that whole pink area there or orange or whatever that is. That whole area, the text says, every Greek and Hebrew or Jew heard the gospel. That's a profound statement. And that's the province where Paul traveled through five years earlier and God muzzled him and said, you're not going to talk here. Do you see the churches? Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Smyrna, Colossae, Laodicea, Philadelphia, Ephesus. What do you think happened here? And then we go earlier to chapter 16, verse 6. I just want to get there again. Oh, sorry, in verse 10, and it says everybody had heard. So five years earlier, God kept him from saying, you don't preach in this place. Five years later, God plugs him into the capital city of that province. And we assume launches a mission team from Ephesus that preaches the gospel in all of those towns that became the most powerful spiritual hub about 40 years later when John was about to die, that Jesus gives John a vision for the seven churches of Asia. I think that's absolutely incredible. God's timing is perfect. He will send the message and the messengers at exactly the right time time God sees the spiritual rottenness and ripeness of everything on earth so that when Paul walked through Asia God knew about every soul that lived in Laodicea and Smyrna he knew about each one of their paths and he knew how each one would respond to the gospel and he knew the best time would be five years from now 
So your neighbor might not be, it might not be the best time to talk to him right now. Five years from now it might be. We can relax. But always be mindful of the mission. All we have to do is go where we can and speak where we can and love where we can. God will direct us as he did to the Apostle Paul.